Long days and pleasant nights to you guys. This week's episode is one of my very favorite comedians, Mike Kaplan. Now, normally, some well, it's not normally. Sometimes it's re- really hard to get someone to share their story, and it's like pulling teeth with him. It's like some sort of weird anxiety dream. The teeth just fall out, and I mean that in the best possible way. It made my job so easy, and he is a really interesting guy. And I hope you enjoy the interview. Um, We have a really cool talk about not only mental health, but also polyamory and where he came from. And those two things are not linked, though it'd be kind of cool if they were. As always, all of the podcasts here at Wayward Wordsmiths Co. are Patreon-funded, and we'd like to thank our Patreon donors. And also, if you have an interest, go to patreon.com and look up Wayward Wordsmiths Co. without any further Adieu, I present to you, Mike Kaplan. Is that good? Hi, Mike. How are you? Very well. Thank you, Tristan. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, you grew up in Jersey, right? I or? did spend the first 18 years of my life in New Jersey. Okay. And um, wh- where did you end up moving in 18 and why? Was it college? or? It was. I went to Brandeis University right. for uh, my undergraduate experience. So that was just outside of the Boston area or okay. just in the Boston area, <laughs> okay. just outside of the Boston, as they call it. Yes, the Boston. The Boston was an old comedy club in New York. Oh, yeah? Uh, It was. (laughs) Uh, Popularized, at least, or made, at least, back in my consciousness by Mm -hmm. the Pete Holmes Mm -hmm. HBO show Crashing, because I believe Pete used to perform a lot at the Boston, so they recreated, uh, if not exactly it, the idea Mm -hmm. of it. All right. Uh, But, yes, I went to college in the Boston area, uh, and then after... That gra- uh, when I graduated, I went to grad school at Boston mm. University, which uh, I'll tell you what city that's in in just one moment. We'll be back right after this fake message. Uh, yeah, I went to Bo- BU. I started doing comedy in Boston uh, while I was in grad school. I lived there until about 2008, at which point I moved to Brooklyn, where I live to this day. To this day. And that's my whole life. Okay. Well, that would, we're done. I know you said you talk usually for like 20 minutes, right. yeah, but, but that's, 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 that's everything. <laughs> that's all the geography. Yeah, is that <laughs> is that all you do? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we're done. No. Um, so you started in Boston. What that? What's that scene uh, like? I've never been. Uh, oh, I, I love, have you been, you've never been to the city? Ever. Whatsoever. Uh, well, uh, I, I love it. I mean, like, 
Every city, I'm sure, has many things that you could say nice things about. And then also, you know, anywhere there's, you know, close to or more than a million people, uh, some of them are going to be great. Yep. And other ones are going to be the ones that people talk about. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, you know, people, we hear the loudest people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, if you've seen Goodwill Hunting, that's part of it. Uh-huh. That's part of Boston. Uh, <laughs> if you've seen any movie about MIT, that's part of it. Uh, there, mm-hmm. Like, so it, it is interesting that the, uh, it is a big, there's lots of colleges. I heard this once that I think that whatever the population is, like if the population is a million during the school year, then it drops down to like, three quarters of a million wow. when college students leave. That there's a, it's a huge, what, I don't know if those numbers are accurate, but that was, that's what I made up right now. It's something, something I heard once. Okay. <laughs> uh, years ago and populations never changed. Yeah, so uh, yeah, somebody wants to come, you gotta, well, you gotta talk somebody else into leaving. <laughs> that was an old, uh, a joke I, I told once uh, about the way that I thought moving worked when I was a child. Uh-huh. Like when me, my family and I were getting ready to move and I was like, oh, man, I, I wonder, you find somebody who wants your exact house and your exact location and you have to want exactly theirs and theirs. So, <laughs> and then you just swap, like uh-huh. like wife swap, but for houses. Yep. <laughs> or husband swap or non-binary partner swap. Yep. Uh, a show that, uh, why, hey, why not, why not those shows? Yeah, why the hell not? Uh, so... I, the city of Boston was, I mean, there are, like, I started at a club uh, called the Comedy Studio, mm-hmm. which is, like, in Harvard Square, right across the street from Harvard. Lots of students would come there from from there, from all over. Uh, it was where, like, Eugene Merman was starting out there before I was there. Uh, and Brendan Small, who would, you know, create home movies and Megalocalypse, mm-hmm. I believe I said right. Uh, it was a lot of syllables. I, I'm glad Several I got it. Several syllables in a row. Even. Oh, yes. It'd be weird to n- not have them in a row. Right? <laughs> this word is uh, three syllables, but you have to say one of them tomorrow. Right. <laughs> uh, and so I, I started out seeing those guys and some other people like who would become like Conan writers, like this guy Brian Kiley, who's now mm-hmm. been writing for Conan for like, I think probably more than at least close to two decades mm-hmm. on one side or the other. Uh, amazing, like, local comedians. This guy, DJ Hazard, I saw uh, at my college first mm-hmm. before I was even pursuing comedy. I was pursuing, like, music initially yeah. before I got into comedy. I was a singer-songwriter and oh. still, quote-unquote, am. <laughs> I, I sing and I songwrite, so I am. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, you can tell a story. It doesn't make you a storyteller. You can ride a bike. It doesn't make you a cyclist. Mm-hmm. So I studied linguistics. I know about words and what they do and don't mean. Or I don't. <laughs> I don't know if that's what a linguist is. And I am one. So uh, I I loved like various aspects of the city. Like when I found DJ Hazard's comedy, like he was the first comedian that ever really, like I didn't grow up watching tons of comedy. I'd seen some no? famous people do it. You know, like I wa- I'd watched my first, the first special I ever saw was maybe when I was like 12 or 13. It was Paul Reiser. And I loved it. I, I, lo- I bought his book, Couplehood. I bought it on tape. I listened to it. I, like, it wasn't relevant to my life a lot because it was about being married and owning a home and the mm. trials and tribulations of adult heteronormative couple life. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was like, boy, I imagine I might. Well, I, that could be something. Yep. But, it, but he was so, I mean, to me, yeah. universally, I'll say universally funny in that he reached me and I assume other people that were like him. Mm-hmm. But DJ Hazard was the first comedian that I saw that I was like, oh, those are thoughts that I could have, had have, talking about things that, you know, mattered to me in different ways, like that t- you know, touched my experience. Mm-hmm. 
And so I started going to the comedy studio just as a fan. Just like, whenever DJ was there, I'd be like, I didn't even know that he would go other places. I'm like, every month or two, he would pop up there for a set. And yeah. I'd be like, I got to go see him. <laughs> Tell these jokes that I love so much. Like, I was crying the first time I saw him. Oh, and, know. yeah, he's wonderful. And another comedian, Tony V, is also, like, they were both there from, like, the 80s. They've been doing it, you know, for decades. And they're just these, you know, masters. And there's so many, so many local, I, mean, I don't want to... I shouldn't try to start naming people because yeah. those are the two that I'll name for now that All right. like stood out to me and I just loved immediately and have known and were also so kind and supportive and like would just when I saw DJ perform at my school like I gave him a CD that I had made of like my my funny songs that I just you know made on my own mm -hmm. and he was like so generous and and kind and I was like wow this is like I, he's also like a big look at, he's a big a big looking dude <laughs> he looks really big he looks very large you, because he is yeah 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 that's the main reason yeah uh like you know he has he's a bald head and he makes jokes about how he looks like you know uh, he could have escaped from an insane asylum or mm -hmm. be a professional wrestler but he's like the sweetest guy yeah. like I would he would call me fuzzy. Uh, that's the main thing that he calls me. I usually have a beard, I guess, mm -hmm. more than I don't have a beard. So that could be part of it. Or just, I have body hair. I'm, yeah. you know, or it could be something about lo logic, math. Who can say? <laughs> this is sort of fuzzy logic now. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I, I remember I got to comedy through uh, through music. Mm -hmm. I, I was I wanted somewhere to play my songs and some of them were funny. I, well, I've tried lots of places like a lot of, you know, music venues and just bars that had music, open mic nights, anywhere I could get on stage. And uh, it was pre Google, uh, but it was, you know, there were some search engines that allowed me to search for like club Boston, you know, yeah. and one brought up the comedy studio mm -hmm. and I called up and I was like, can I perform here? And they said, uh, sure. You can do five minutes, you know, or seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kermit the Frog was the host. <laughs> and uh, it does kind of sound like Rick Jenkins' voice as well, uh, <laughs> who is the owner and has been there for, for the decades. Mm -hmm. That Now it's been there over 20 years. Uh, and so, yeah, I went there. And sometimes at a music open mic, like, they'll give you, like, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Like, play three songs, you know? Yeah. But at the at this place, I was like, ooh, five or seven. Like, I had to, like, get just – I played two short songs and, like, talked a little bit in the middle, but mostly. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that sparked my interest in, like, oh – it's fun to talk. Like, I kind of was just, like, riffing because I didn't have jokes, and I didn't call it riffing even. I just was, like, I called it talking in between songs until the audience stopped laughing, and then <laughs> I play the other song. Um, and I did that, and then I, like, little by little, uh, eventually, it, for a, a couple years, I just kept pursuing music, and I would go to that club when he would have me, which was maybe every few months, you know, a handful of times. So I wouldn't say that I was doing comedy, at yeah. that time, I was like a tourist into that world, and I was mostly pursuing music until 2002, which is when I say that I started doing comedy, because I not only went there, I found other open mics, I, and then I was going out to comedy events most nights, if not all nights, sometimes all nights, mm -hmm. but most nights of most weeks. And I would now, at this point, ha I had written some jokes, and I would tell them, like, at an open mic, I would do like four minutes of horrible jokes, and then one one-minute song that was okay and had a punchline at the end, and I was like, I did it. Yeah. This is doing it. Yeah. Uh, and then little by little, you know, I would have jokes become less terrible or, like, find pan for the gold mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to one the ones that should be panned. I guess that's mm -hmm. that must be where that comes from. When, like, when somebody pans a movie, yep. you're panning for gold, but most of the stuff that you get isn't gold. Generally dirty. You pan mostly not gold. Yes. Huh. I'm sure. Did I know that? I now we'll say you did, and you look very smart for doing it. Thank you very much. Yeah. I really know what I'm doing. Of course. Uh, so yeah, You're so a linguistics person. Yes. So and so I was in uh, grad school. 
I stayed in Boston because I wanted to continue to pursue music there because I'd started that my senior year of college mm -hmm. and I was like I think I you know this seems like an okay city to mm -hmm. but and as it turns out it's a it is a great city to answer your question of how the scene is there yes <laughs> which is the question that I'm answering yes as it turns out I I, uh, I trust you the thank you very much I appreciate it good night everybody uh <laughs> I your trust has been misplaced uh, oh here it is I found it I found it um <laughs> I, I picked I picked it up again I got it um the Boston comedy scene when I started was, and I think has been consistently like pretty tight knit. Mm -hmm. uh, like it's you know a smaller city than New York. Like New York has hundreds, if not thousands, of people yeah. that I think are doing comedy in one way or another. Boston, mm -hmm. I would say, had at at the time and maybe probably at any time like a few hundred people that might be like doing open mics up to you know full full time Boston headliners like who mm -hmm. live there and have been doing that there is like there's probably you know a few dozen. Mm -hmm. And then in between, you know, got people, a bunch of people, you know, dozens of people featuring and then opening and like the people eventually, like once you showed up enough, like the people would recognize you and be like, oh, you're a part of the scene. Like, do you want to be on, do you want to be in the softball league? Like there's a Boston comedian softball league for That's a while. Wonderful. Uh, there's like people would play, uh, you know, like Texas Hold'em tournaments uh -huh. after shows. Like eventually it was sort of just like, and it was weird to get to the other side of it because I remember the first time. It was, I wasn't even, I wouldn't have said I was a comedian. I was just a person who had performed at the comedy studio a few times just playing music. Like over the course of a year, I'd maybe been there three or four times. And a guy at the, and I was coming to, to see a show, not to be on the show. I was like, ooh, DJ Hazard is here probably. I'm coming to see him. The guy at the door was like, you're a comedian, right? You performed here. I was like, I, I performed here. He's like, yeah, you, comedians can just come in. And I was like, me? I'm a comedian? Comedian? Uh, it's, it's right there in the middle of it. Me is in comedian. Uh, mm -hmm. I put the me there. Uh, before that, it was just uh, Codian, I guess. <laughs> Which sounds uh, like an excellent drug. Oh, yeah. Stand-up Codian. Mm -hmm. It does. Uh, but, yeah, so the I got uh, – after you'd been doing it for – Usually even just like a few months or if you keep showing up for a year, two years, like people understand that you're like pursuing it seriously and they're like, oh, yeah, we're all doing we're all in this now. Yeah. And so it's very I feel like other than the sort of, you know, the the competition that you feel yourself to be like, oh, people are getting spots. I, I want to get spots. And mm -hmm. ultimately, the competition is really with yourself. Yeah. Like, you know, am I better now than I was a month ago, a year ago, two years ago, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, that's always been if I look back on an old, an old, old thing, I'd be like, ooh, yeah, that's that was bad. Ooh, that means I'm good. I yep. mean, it means I'm better. Mm -hmm. Hopefully something or more self-aware, at least now I'm bad in ways that I understand. <laughs> but then there's like, you know, a delusional confidence that mm -hmm. you that often accompanies the beginning. I have something that's worthwhile. You have to think it, e even though it surely isn't as true as it's going to be, yep. if it ever is. Some people start off, I think, too much with like a self-deprecate, like, you know, like a, with awareness, being mm -hmm. like, this isn't good. What do I do? I mm -hmm. know that if they have to know that they will get better or that, that the only way to get better is to do it and not to be like, why Why would people come? I had a girlfriend who did comedy mm -hmm. and still does. And But I remember when we dated, she was a few years in and she's really funny and really smart. And she was like, why should people come to see me if they could go see Dave Attell, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, everyone can't. Get, everyone can't get into a tell show every night, yeah. so they might as well see you also. Yes. Uh, and I'm like, what? Don't think like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or think like it, but uh, I'm not going to. I'm like, come see me, everybody. Don't go see David Tell, one of the best. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but yeah, it was the Boston scene. There were tons of, not tons, there was like at least a few, usually a few places that there were shows or open mics or different things every night within the city. Like, at, eventually when I was there, I moved after I'd been there for six years. And by that point, I was certainly performing every night 
that I wanted to, mm-hmm. uh, which was usually most nights. And like I, I hosted an open mic uh, that uh, that was every Monday. And then I'd go to like other sort of, you know, host open mics or showcase shows at the clubs on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then, then like Friday and Saturday. Often now there were like paying gigs that you could do either in the city at certain clubs or like open for, like I think Mike Birbiglia was the first guy that I opened for at the Comedy Connection, mm-hmm. which is now the Wilbur Theater, it's still yeah. there. Uh, and like so I got to start opening for those guys maybe like four or five years in like you know people like Kathleen Madigan was somebody that I got to open for like mm-hmm. Jeff Ross like just different you know people who were that that was the place if they're coming to Boston that was where they were gonna perform and then then also there was like gigs you know an hour two hours three hours six hours away in like you know Maine New Hampshire Vermont Connecticut Rhode Island farther out Western Massachusetts like all all of New England was like you know the, the states are uh, relatively speaking, close together. Yeah. Uh, so you could go, you know, drive two hours, do a sh- do a five minute open mic set. That's what we did in the beginning. You know, like, oh, no show in Boston tonight. I guess we'll drive to Newport, Rhode Island. Wow. Uh, you know, three comedians yep. get in a car, all go do five minutes each, drive home, like two hours inputting travel time wow. for you know five minutes, <laughs> which is it was just what we what we did. Wow. Um, and so yeah, it, uh, unlike New York, where you know if you're in New York, you can just you know every night maybe. You know, depending on, you know, who knows what the caliber of these places, the places that you can get on when you're starting are, but you can get on four times a night, five times a night. There'll be open mics at 4 p.m., 6 p.m. Like, for me starting out, there was one open mic that was a bringer show, but it was only two people. Okay. Uh, Whereas, like, in New York, I've seen them, like, 10, 15, 20. And at that point, it seems, I mean, completely exploitative. It is a (laughs) money-making machine. For sure. Whereas, I mean, that was still obviously part of the goal back up in Boston, but I was where I was performing at this place called The Vault. Like you, if you're, you have, you get five minutes. If you bring two friends, it's not, they're playing $7. Like I didn't, I don't think they had to buy drinks. So it wasn't the craziest. You could lay out 20 bucks, you know, for your friends to come if you wanted to. If, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I don't mean to be classist. Some people don't have certainly 20 bucks every week, but you, yeah. you try to eventually at this place, like, and it would guarantee that there was an audience. Mm-hmm. And then they would also book like other better comedians, more experienced comedians that like Gary Goldman would come through there. Mm-hmm. And like Gary was one, also from Boston and I would love seeing, he would just come do like 20 minutes of like new things at three different places, like certain nights that you just get to see all these people mm-hmm. like working out and become, becoming even better and being great. And so the audience would get to see, you know, I mean, it was sort of, I guess a minimal, like a, an, a microcosm of like the way the comedy cellar is. Like if you, any given night in New York, you go to the comedy cellar, you'll see a good show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also maybe you'll see like mega stars and mega, you know, successful and talent. You no, know, obviously everybody's talented, but the, the yeah. people that you've heard of, you yeah. know, coming through. And uh, so <laughs> at this open mic, I'm like, it's the same thing. So you can see your friend and mm-hmm. also maybe somebody who's not your friend and good. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, these comedians are my friends. Um, yeah. And so starting out there, eventually after like, I remember one time I could only bring one friend and they're like, okay, but next time and I was like, ooh. And then I started like working the door for them on Saturday nights. And then, so I would come help set up uh, and like take tickets. And then you get five minutes on that show and you get on the open mic for free. And then little by little, eventually when they're like, oh, you have 10 minutes of comedy. That's not the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> you can now open on like quote unquote real shows. Like, yeah. you know, more out in the suburbs or wherever they had. There was like one one club in like the White Mountains of New Hampshire. It was like a two and a half hour drive. And it paid like more. Th- it was like, ooh, you get $75 to open as opposed to like it was usually 50 or if people didn't like you 25 <laughs> or uh 
Anyway, uh, so that was, I guess, how, is, does that answer your question of what it was like starting out in the Boston comedy scene? Yes, it does. Very much so. Thank you. I keep spilling water, and I'm sorry. I will sorry. switch your coaster to one that is not warped. Thank you so much. Um, you mentioned when you were talking about, um, was it John Reiser or what, whomever? Um, Paul Reiser. Paul Reiser, sorry. Oh, yes. My You're name. fine. Um. You you're polyamorous, right? I am. And then how did you get to? Oh, I, I that? love I love all kinds of Pauls. Paul, Paul <laughs> I'm polyamorous. Uh, sorry about sorry I stepped on your actual question. Uh, do you ask Along how came polyamory? <laughs> uh, is the question how did I get into polyamory? Yeah, how did you discover that was something you had the capacity for? Great question. Great formulation. Great content. Form and function, really nailing that question. Thank you very much. I look, I tell the truth. Um, I so I was married mm-hmm. in uh, the last decade, right. uh, like over over a decade ago. Like I was in my early twenties, mid twenties when I met this woman. I was twenty four when I met her, and we got married a year and a half later. And then maybe a year and a half after that, we separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was it. Was the longest relationship that I'd had up to that point. And uh, I've had a couple others that have approached, like I've had like three years is like the max of like a few relationships that I've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, I'm optimistic about the one that I'm in. It's been a little over a year, but uh, I, don't, I don't believe in jinxing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my wife, when she was not my wife, my ex-wife pre-being wife mm-hmm. uh, had, she was the first person that mentioned polyamory to me in life. I don't think I'd heard of it. Oh. Uh, and I, you know, I grew up, with parent, two parents that were a man and woman, uh, married until they divorced, you know, the standard nuclear family, <laughs> nuclear fission, <laughs> splitting apart. Um, and, uh, I, you know, so I, I assumed that I would have, through, you know, media, fairy tales, uh, and the anecdotal thing that I had in front of me, mm-hmm. That quote unquote evidence, I don't know, evidence of that's what some people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, I assume I'll grow up, get married to one person, have a family, have a job. But the course of my, you know, childhood to adulthood had, was, and still is like, you know, a matter of figuring out that, oh, there are many paths, like not just the one that is laid out by my family, my culture, my society, my religion, my whatever, uh, that. I can take from any of those things the one the parts of it that resonate for me. But if something doesn't, then I'm like, oh, why don't I? Why shouldn't I? Like for be, even becoming a musician or a comedian, I was like, that's my my dream was to be a singer songwriter. I'm like, well, why not at least? Tr- I know I won't become one if I don't try. Mm-hmm. I might not become one if I do try. Uh, so why not try? That was the same way that I became vegetarian. The same way that I became vegan. I'm like, I think it's what I want to do. I think it's what I you know, quote unquote, should do, mm-hmm. like it feels right and resonates. It seems like it might be difficult. It might not be possible, but why not try to live the way that I want to? And so that didn't catch up to me right when I met my wife, but uh, we met and, you know, hit it off and became very serious very soon, which is a mm-hmm. thing that I've done a lot in the past. Um, and don't necessarily regret, but uh, also, you know, I think sort of uh, trust but verify, you know, mm-hmm. those kinds of emotions. Like the emotions that you feel in the beginning, they could be about because the person is great. It could be that they have great pheromones for you. It could be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's good to also, you know, for me, I won't get married 
before uh, a year and a half ever again, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I think as we got, we split after like three years. I'm like, three years. Okay, that's a good amount of time to know that whether you want to be with somebody yeah. for three, certainly more than you knew at a year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but so I remember my wife broached the subject by saying that she had dated, uh, she was uh, bisexual, she had mm-hmm. dated, you know, men and women before, and she had often found herself in positions where she was like with a man for, uh, in a relationship for a, a good chunk of time, and then found herself wanting to, you know, experience being with women at a certain point. Like she was good at being monogamous up to a point, uh, but then didn't want to be. And she was like, can we have an open relationship in that way? Mm-hmm. And at the time I was like, no, thank you. So we didn't. So we had a monogamous relationship, a monogamous marriage, uh, up until sort of the end of it when we we had grown apart for other reasons, mm-hmm. uh, different incompatibilities, you know, the fact that who you are when you're 24 and who that person is and who you are at the beginning of a relationship and who the other person is, all these things are subject to not only change, but also, you know, not be, you're not aware of all of all the facets of another person, of a relationship immediately. You never are, even of yourself. It's always a growing, learning, changing evolution Mm -hmm. process. And so, but by the end, one thing that, one positive thing that did come from the relationship, and I don't, which I don't regret at all, uh, it was a learning experience in many ways, and I still care for her. Like kind of, she operates in the part of my brain that like, I think of her as like a cousin, you know? Uh She's like a family member who's not, who I didn't grow up with. Uh-huh. Uh, but is cool and I have positive regard for. And if we're in the same town, in the same place, hey, we should do something, you yeah. know? Like, I'll see her maybe once a year, maybe maybe less, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, th- a positive thing that came out of it was while we were sort of in the throes of before we went to counseling, before we decided to stop, uh, which took was a, yes, a many-month process. Mm-hmm. But uh, one thing that we considered, like she was suffering from suffering with depression uh and i and that was one one aspect of a thing that was difficult for both of us to deal with like i didn't want to you know i shame her for experiencing what she was experiencing i also it was also having an impact on me and my life and our relationship and so one one way in which it would manifest is like i I don't know if i don't know if even in the best of circumstances maybe our libidos wouldn't have been matched Mm -hmm. but uh, certainly, while she was contending with depression, like she didn't have the biggest libido. Yeah. So sometimes the way that things would happen would be we would go weeks or months. I don't mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact amounts of time, but it mm-hmm. seemed like longer than I would have chosen. <laughs> and I would be as, of course, as patient and understanding as I could, but also I'd want her to, you know, know what I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And you know, we had entered a relationship that was monogamous, mm-hmm. and as such, seemed like if we hey, we, we agreed to only have sex with each other. That involves, at some point, having sex with each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, of course, I don't want to make a person have sex with me. No. I, I won't do that. No. I will. I would like a person to choose to have sex with me when they want to have sex with me. And that's part of part of a compatibility test mm-hmm. in, a, in a relationship is, do you have, like, a Venn diagram that overlaps somewhere enough yeah. for the amount that you both want to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, over the, the long haul or at a given chunk so we would we would like you know a vet i would go a long time without uh experiencing that and sort of you know keep it in and then eventually which we would sort of have you know a discussion slash a heated discussion of like a passionate discussion that would often end with us like feeling this passion and then having this kind of you know fraught frenetic sex Uh and that would like sort of reset the clock 
Okay. Um, but that was not sustainable over the long haul. Yeah. Be like, okay, well, we did it, and now, but that can't be, that's not a solution. No. And so at some point, I was like, I do think now, like, can we re- reopen the discussion that you broached about open relationships? Mm-hmm. Because I do now understand that, like, we care about each other, and, like, sex and love are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are connected if you want them to be. And sometimes if you don't want them to be, mm-hmm. but I was like, I could definitely see you like if you if you want to date women now, like let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, a phase of the relationship wherein that was what we tried. And I was like, and for me, and she's like, and you can date men, and I'm like, that's not what I want. Uh-huh. But she's like, but that would be fair. And I'm like, technically, I mean, looking back at it now, I'm like, she she was identifying as bisexual, mm-hmm. I was not, mm-hmm. so it wasn't exactly fair. Uh, but we had we we came up with some guidelines by which like I couldn't do everything, but I could do some things. Yeah. At that time, so that was like the first baby steps into mm-hmm. like that world of being like, oh, you can make whatever rules work for you and the other person or people mm-hmm. that you're involved with. And I think that it it came from not the healthiest place. It came from a place of like, uh, you're unhappy. Will this could this make you happy? Yeah. And it kind of did. And then, but it also sort of then wasn't it wasn't the healthiest yeah. way of doing everything so i don't recommend that i don't recommend that course of action yeah. into polyamory which wasn't yep. specifically what we were even necessarily doing because there's obviously many forms or maybe not obviously there are many forms that open relationships can take and it's only very recently that i would say that i am polyamorous mm-hmm. whereas i've been involved in some variety of open relationships for maybe the past 6 to eight years, yeah. whereas like, so the relationship that I, so the marriage ended, we went to counseling, we agreed eventually that we are not for each other mm-hmm. uh, in a marriage. We got a divorce, we high-fived on the way outside of the courthouse, <laughs> we're friends. Um, and so then I started, I was like, I guess maybe I won't date uh, one, I won't be with one person forever. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll, it will just be like serial monogamous. Maybe I'll, mm-hmm. like, cause I loved like the, uh, the first year of a relationship, the first two years maybe. So I'm like, maybe I'll just keep dating people like over and over, you know, and just keep, I love meeting new people. That's such a, and getting to know them. And, uh, and I wrote a joke eventually that like when I realized I'm like, whoa, what if, what if I could have all of this? What if I could have the benefits, the bonuses of meeting new people, but also have one person that I share and grow and live with and have a family with or be a family with if we don't have children. Uh, and so I, the joke that I wrote was like, I just, I'm just looking for the one that will let me be with others. <laughs> and and even saying it like, let me, like mm-hmm. I want, like the, my girlfriend now uh, encourages, she's like excited when I like flirt with a new person, meet a new person, mm-hmm. tell her about a new person, tell her about wow. the people that I have also been seeing that are various, you know, friends mm-hmm. with benefits around the country or, mm-hmm. you know, dates that I go on while in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. She's excited by it. Like she has also for parts of our relationship, like seen other people. And yeah. like, I, I'm happy for her when she like gets a guy's number or mm-hmm. a girl's number or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so little by little, so the, a couple relationships after my marriage. I had one that was monogamous for a year and I stopped being, and we stopped, we stopped, I stopped being in it, she stopped being in it, we both stopped. She's still, I think, oh God, is she still in that relationship? Who <laughs> oh boy, uh. Um, I almost said her name and then I didn't, and then I'm like, it's a very common name, but it's also not important. Yes. Yeah. So we'll I didn't, yeah. Banjo. Yes, so, Banjo, are you still in that relationship? You can, you can leave, you yep. can definitely leave. Yep. She has since gone on to be in other relationships. Happily, we are also friends. I dated another woman. Mm-hmm. 
who is now still very a, a very dear friend to me. Uh, she moved to another city, and I love going there and seeing her. And at times, if we are both in places where we want to be, you know, quote unquote, more than friends, we'll do that. And otherwise, like in that relationship, like now, anything sexual is not even the thing. Like it's like I love her. I have love for her. I like she is. She was one of the, it wasn't a long relationship. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, less than a year, but I'd known her for years and I still know her. And I'm like, the amount of care that I have for her is like, uh, and so now the being able to share that, just share that, you know, whereas I feel like in some, I think there's certainly healthy monogamous relationships where people can share everything that they want to mm-hmm. and that they want shared about past relationships. Be like, oh, that person was very meaningful to me. And so when I go to their city, I'll have lunch with them and it will be, you know, a more intimate lunch than with a colleague, you know? Yeah. We, we, if you're, if I agree not to sleep with them, then I won't. Then, mm-hmm. But other, like I can't not have the the history that we have. I can't not have my, my thoughts and feelings and emotions. I can control my actions if I want to and you want me to, if mm-hmm. it's a monogamous thing. But in this situation now, like my girlfriend is happy that I ha- that I have had this love, that I- the love still continues. Mm-hmm. I had some uh, some friends uh, who lived in Portland, and it's not important other than it makes uh, it, it fits. Yeah. Uh, they were also <laughs> in an open marriage, uh, and were un- obviously time is potentially a limited resource, yeah. but love is not a limited resource. Like, mm-hmm. and in fact, they they were the first people to like sort of lay out for me the idea that like love begets love like the more that you are full of love for one person then maybe the more loving you the more love you can have for another person like you're just happy like communicating being open sharing if that's what you and everyone wants like oh like it's exciting like if i go away and i hook up with somebody and i come back and i share that story with my girlfriend like this is great and she's like agreed this is great so i saw that person she moved away I then I date then I moved to New York and I was dating uh, this comedian that I mentioned earlier I think uh, who you should definitely go see if you can't see David Hill or Why even not? if you can um, Why not both and yeah please That's the whole oh, moral of it exa- Why not both Yes you can go to more than one comedy show Absolutely Yeah David mm-hmm. Hill's gonna tell like some of the same jokes night mm-hmm. after night <laughs> um, Check out his special you know yeah. he has various ones uh, They're great mm-hmm. So. I was dating this woman. Mm-hmm. I moved in with her. I moved down to New York a- after a couple months of knowing her uh, because I wanted to move to New York and because I wanted to be where she was and because, you know, comedy, it was like sort of a confluence of personal and professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I, we, we moved in together. We lived together for several years. And I got on Last Comic Standing in 2010. And then I went on tour after that with the top five from like, September through February, not it was like not every weekend, but most weekends I'd be gone for like four days doing yeah. shows. It was like 65, 70 different cities. Wow. And that was part of part of our discussion, part of my girlfriend at the times thinking was she's like, you were just on TV. Millions of people saw you. There might be fans that like you want to <laughs> do things with. She's like, if you make out with somebody in a bar or if a groupie wants to blow you in a bathroom, <laughs> like that was what she's I'm like, it wouldn't be a groupie because I'm just one person in a group. But <laughs> Uh, but and she would at that time she was like, but I feel like it would be it would make me uncomfortable if like you brought somebody back to your hotel room and like had a more intimate encounter with them. Mm. So that was like another step towards like oh like some kind of openness, but yeah. not fully. And one of the reasons that we we parted ways, what 
I was like, this is, this is, I mean, thank you. Like, this is cool. And I wasn't like asking for this, but we had talked about open relationships. I'd been listening to Dan Savage as, for as long as his podcast, the Savage Lovecast existed and reading his column for years before that. And he, you know, introduced the term monogamish into uh, society and culture. Yeah. And the idea that, of course, there, like, there are so many ways to be. You could be socially monogamous and, you know, sexually non-monogamous. Mm -hmm. You could be swingers. You could, you know, be polyamorous and have a triad or a quad. You could have a main primary partner and different partners on the side. Mm -hmm. You could have no partners and just be, you know, uh, engage in, like, solo polyamory or relationship anarchy. Uh which is a thing. Okay. Um, and so there's all these different ways of being that I was now learning about and realizing that, oh, yeah, we we now in this relationship that we're in get to that started monogamously mm -hmm. that I wanted to at the time. I was like, oh, yeah, I was still thinking maybe I would be. But I was like, oh, maybe can our relationship be open? And she was like, yes, in this way. And then I, eventually I was like, I, I think I want to be in like a more fully open thing. And she was like, I don't think I do. And so that was one of the reasons that we parted ways. It wasn't, there were, mm -hmm. there were many other things. It wasn't the only thing, but it's also a thing that I was like, I think I, I do want to try this. Mm -hmm. And so one of the people, I dated another person after that and it was also partially open. Uh, she was intellectually on board and we tried to take, you know, steps towards like eventually, but it ultimately wasn't what she wanted. Uh -huh. uh, and then my next girlfriend, uh, she was like, I'd like to be your girlfriend. And I was like, I want, if you're going to be my girlfriend, I want it to be an open relationship where like our, our guidelines ended up being that I was totally comfortable with while we were both in New York, mm -hmm. we didn't live together, but while we were both in New York, I'm like, we would prioritize seeing each other. Yeah. And like, I wouldn't see anybody else or date anybody else in New York. But if I was on the road, then anything, uh, was fine. Uh -huh. And, j and her only parameter was tell her. Okay. Like after I came home, cause she's like, if you don't tell me then I feel like I'll just be worried. Is it happening? all the time, every night, mm -hmm. every time you leave. And it wasn't, it might've happened at times once a month, maybe mm -hmm. more, maybe less. And I would just go away, I would come back, I would tell her what happened. And sometimes she'd like ask for more details and be excited about it. And sometimes we'd talk about it in bed. And some, mm -hmm. it was like a cool thing that didn't divide us. And she mm -hmm. would also do it sometimes, not as much, but, mm -hmm. uh, and we only stopped being together because I, I, she wanted kids very soon and I didn't know if I wanted them at all. Mm -hmm. And so we parted ways. Then I was in one more monogamous relationship, and that was like sort of like, oh, the the icing on the cake of this isn't like I thought she was an amazing person. I thought it, I, I was. That's why I was like, I'll I'll do this because it's what you want. Mm -hmm. Even though she knew for sure that I I also cared about being open relationships as a a way of living that I would ultimately probably want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And so we dated for a little less than a year, and the issue came came up eventually. Yeah. I think I talked about it on a podcast. I talked about mm -hmm. loving her, being with her monogamously, but also having uh, the, I, I don't know whether polyamory is an orientation, like mm -hmm. a, a sexual orientation. Like some people say that it is, and some people say that it is more a, a structure, you know, a relationship structure. Um, and like th the same is true, I think, for kink sometimes. People are like, some people are like, I'm kinky and it's, part of me the same way that being queer is yeah uh, or a different way but a similar enough way that I'm mm -hmm. calling it an orientation like uh, so I don't mind if other people say one way or the other for them mm -hmm. for me there is part of it that does feel that way that I'm like this is the way that I feel most natural whether it's the, what I'm doing or what I am mm -hmm. but so after that relationship ended uh, we're almost caught up yep I finally like so 2014 uh, met a woman who reached out to me online because she had heard me on podcasts talking about open relationships, not yet polyamory, but being open in the way that I was or wanted to be at the time. Yeah. And she, we started 
uh, getting to know each other. She was living in L.A. We, I would go out there pretty frequently for comedy and to see her then. Mm-hmm. And then she, after a year, she moved to New York, and we were together for a year here. And uh, and it was great, especially, like, and we had, here's the, the main difference between this and the other one was this was a, she was like, let's just have a don't ask, don't tell. Especially, like, while yeah. we're living apart, like, just, hey, we're, we love each other. We're us. Yeah. And enjoy. Be like I have another friend who's uh, an open relationship person. Yeah. She's like when she's with a person, she's like, our relationship status is uh, we're adults. <laughs> you know, be kind yeah. and caring and considerate, and mm-hmm. you know, do talk in ad- in advance, but of doing anything, I think, like at the outset, like what do we have guidelines? Do we have rules mm-hmm. about sharing? About not sharing? About like in what situation? Like what are what is okay? Are things only for us? Are other things not? And. In the beginning, with this person, my last girlfriend, she and I wanted the same thing. We're like, oh, this this will be great, great. I would travel and things would happen. Mm-hmm. I would be in my home and she wasn't, things would happen. Eventually when we were living together, whatever it was. And then mm-hmm. eventually, throughout knowing her, like there were times when I had more emotional connections with people that seemed less like I quote unquote should like keep the don't ask, don't tell. I was like, it felt not like a betrayal, but like it felt like not being completely open the way that I wanted to, to, yeah. to not share those things with her. Mm-hmm. But she was like, I don't want, I don't want you to share those things with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but we, uh, we, it was more an if asked, will tell. Okay. Um, I would say like, you know, if something important happened, like one night, you know, she was at, out late dancing and I think she had like sort of a, it wasn't a, she wasn't in danger, but she felt like, uh, uncomfortable by a thing that had happened with a guy and she's like can I tell you about this and I was like of course please yeah. like I want to be yeah. there for you even if, obviously if she had a great experience with a guy and that's also she had like a threesome with two dudes once and she was like can I tell you about this thing and I was like you can you can tell me anything and it was mm-hmm. like it took some in the context of the way we were uh, communicating like some processing and yeah. being like okay 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 so which is interesting because now uh with my current girlfriend yeah. who, with whom I am, like I would say we are polyamorous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if she told me that she had a threesome with two dudes, uh, that would be, uh, it would be less less processing necessary. Like I'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, like I mean, it'd still be like, tell me about it. Like who who are they? How did it happen? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the, in the last one, when the sort of the milieu, like the, of the relationship was mostly not telling it, just like, okay, Whereas now it's like completely open. So I feel like there will be very few surprises. Like if she meets a person, she'll tell me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll be like, are you gonna, do you think you'll call them? Will they call you? Will you go out with them? Like, you know, and we love now, like with this person, it's working perfectly. It's, yeah. I mean, it's only been a little over a year uh, since I've met her, but mm-hmm. it's nice. We're mm-hmm. living together and we, we've had just a bunch of experiences that are really positive and like we, we, we trust each, obviously, like you can, this could be true of anybody in any format of relationship, but we like, we love each other, we trust each other, we understand we have best intentions for each other, mm-hmm. so that if anything does come up that makes us feel away, we don't, you know, interpret it as the other person like attacking us, or, you know, if we have fears or insecurities, like those are obviously parts of the human experience that we feel comfortable sharing and like, you know, helping to interrogate together. And uh, so it was ultimately being in a don't ask, don't tell open, not polyamorous relationship that over the course of it, I realized like I do have the, certainly I am having multiple feelings for many people. I want to be able to share those feelings with the people that Mm -hmm. I have the feelings for and the other people that are the important people in my life. Mm -hmm. Like I, it feel, if that's what it felt like, not a betrayal, but uh, just an incomplete sharing 
of who I am and what my life is with the person that was meant to be my primary partner at the time. And so now, like, I live with this person. They are, you know, uh, she is in a very real way. You know, you could say like, certainly chronologically primary, uh, yeah. emotionally perhaps as well. There are certainly there's other people that I I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and every all the loves like what relationship anarchy is is essentially. Mm-hmm. Every fr- like every friendship that you have isn't ranked like oh this is my primary friendship this is my secondary friendship huh. it's every friendship is like oh this is the person that I go to movies with this is the person mm-hmm. that I go to the gym with this is the person that I go bowling with this is the person that I go fucking with you know this is the person yeah. I don't know if you swear on your podcast but now oh, you do we yeah definitely do uh, and the I don't know if you do but I do <laughs> <laughs> if you swear on your own fucking podcast uh, a fucking podcast um and so. <laughs> Every you know every you have some people that you yeah. you open up to about all your other things. You have some people that you don't do that with, and mm-hmm. so but you're not like this. Sometimes you might be like they're my best friend. Sometimes mm-hmm. you might be like this is just you know Dave and yeah. this is Sarah yeah. and like everybody. And so relationship anarchy is essentially that that okay. every connection between two people that you have is its own thing and doesn't have to be ranked in a hierarchy. And so while I, the fact that I do live with this person yeah. is uh, sort of an implicit, at least, if not explicit, yeah. ranking. Like, I call her my girlfriend, and I don't mm-hmm. call anybody else my girlfriend. Uh, but it's possible that I could have another mm-hmm. girlfriend. And so, uh, yeah, being in that last relationship yeah. uh, helped me learn that this is the way that I want to be. And that was one of the reasons why we parted. She had her own reasons as well. Uh, and we are also good friends. And I, you know, I care about her. I love her. You know, mm-hmm. I and she is also, like, family to me now. Yeah. And that's kind of, like, it's... The more people that I, you know, meet and communicate with and learn and grow to be with in whatever way, mm-hmm. as a friend, platonically, romantically, sexually, not, like, they're all, like, sort of gaining familiarity to yeah. me. Familiarity, familiarity. <laughs> and uh, and so now I am, like, and I actually met the, the woman that I'm with now mm-hmm. in the sort of the last two months of my last relationship. And I told her, I'm, da- I'm with this person. I live with this person. I was living with that with that person at the time. And uh, we have this arrangement, and like she's actually away for the summer, so I have time if you want to hang out, and if those terms are amenable to you. Mm-hmm. And they were. She was like really interested, and she she had never been uh, like a polyamorous identified person, but wow. she like she liked hearing about me and my relationship and my other relationships, and like she, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I really want to share, and she's like, I really want to hear, oh, and great. so we both uh, adopted those things, uh, and so it was really yeah, it's only been a little over a year, mm-hmm. you know to the past two years that I'd be like, I am polyamorous. Yeah. I would say, number one, thank you for uh, mentioning the term relationship anarchy because that's pretty much how I feel because I feel like love comes from empathy and so anyone you empathize with, you know, way you do love and I don't try to rank people. Yeah. Because, like, it, we're all important because we're all not important because In the, we're yeah. all important. In the ranking of yeah. ranking versus not ranking, I rank not mm. ranking higher than ranking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And um, you seem like like the, the really hyper open guy and whatnot. And I know you meditate. Oh, none of that was true. None of that was true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a character. Yes, this has all been like a bit. Very sorry to do. In fact, the real th- the real bit was the thing that just happened. That was I only like pranks to last for three seconds. So <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Sorry. Please continue. I no am hyper open. You're like a hyper open, and you you meditate as well. And I do. Is did that start? The openness, or were you like, I want to find a way to be more open? This seems to help people with that. Uh, for many years, I, I only I've only been meditating 
uh, like in a specific way with mm-hmm. the app Headspace. Yes. Uh, and I hadn't been really meditating before that, and that's only been for a little over a year as mm-hmm. well. Uh, and mm-hmm. in I lo- I it's I love it. I it's different a little bit every time, and I'm not sure even I guess I know why I didn't used to want to do it. It was because I imagined that life was so full of things that I I can't I know that in the time that this body has to exist, odds are, mm-hmm. all other things being equal, I won't be able to read all the books I've even purchased already, yeah. plus the ones that I'll come to read, plus the ones that haven't come out yet, listen yeah. to all the music, listen to all the podcasts, create all the art, create all the music and comedy, uh, like engage in all the relationships and friendships. Like I was like, there's so much to do. There's like, I, I know that I can't do it all. I know that Netflix has too many things. So I'm like, and I'm going to take time away from all that to sit. Mm-hmm. To, like, I didn't know what meditation was. I'm like, I'm going to, like, it, sa- it seemed like nothing. It's, yeah. Which, it, in a way, it kind of is. Yeah. But now, in a way, I'm like, oh, what? There's certainly times that I, like, I've watched a lot of TV shows mm-hmm. and I don't. If I could go back and extract, I mean, sure, some of them are not in my memory. There's some shows that I only think <laughs> about when I'm like, what show would I take out of my watching experience if I could? <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that one. Uh-huh. Like, I don't even want to, I don't want to name names. Yeah, of course not. Like, and they're not, th- not because they're, I, won't, I don't watch, like, bad, there's, I watch, I used to watch things, I think maybe people would call it hate watching or, like, <laughs> okay. I- ironically watching. Uh-huh. But I'm like, now I'm like, I'm not going to hate watch yeah. anything until I've love watched everything that there is to love watch, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, that's just the way that I want, I mean, yeah. every once in a while, if, you know, like I went to the movie Snakes on a Plane when it came out with like 30 Boston comedians yeah. and everybody in the theater was having the best time uh-huh. yelling things out. And that's a very dear experience to me. So I'm like, my guideline is love watch, but I'm like, oh, this the experience there was actually the social yeah. engagement. And that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so the point is that I guess now I look back on, oh, I know that I won't get to watch everything. Yeah. Uh, and I know I'm like so many people that I respect and care about speak highly of meditation, get mm-hmm. something out of meditation. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. I had actually started taking Tai Chi lessons from a friend a, a mm-hmm. couple of years ago. And at, at the end of some of our lessons, he would have us sit down and meditate for like even just like three minutes, five minutes. And I was like, okay, I maybe maybe I'm, I am growing and heading in that mm-hmm. direction. I also several years ago started doing uh, ayahuasca ceremonies, which are uh, – the guide that I go to mm-hmm. calls them meditations. He's okay. like, it's uh, an I- a meeting with ayahuasca like a meditation. Right on. And and it all it is now now that I've done many ayahuasca ceremonies and many meditation sessions on my own at home with this app, mm-hmm. there is certainly there is a common quality to them. Uh, uh, like sometimes, I would say even like the most powerful meditation I've done on my own at home mm-hmm. has some has many things in common with like one of the lesser, least powerful moments of an ayahuasca meditation. Like mm-hmm. the most powerful ones are like, you know, in sometimes potentially completely like dissociative mm-hmm. seeming. Uh, and just, you know, throughout the whole physical, mental, emotional, spiritual state of being. Yeah. Uh, and meditation with the app has has come close to like, I've been like, oh, these are at least the same flavor of mm-hmm. experience. Okay. Whereas before I'd done ayahuasca, I'd never had that flavor of experience. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, that's another thing that I think maybe opened me up to, like it wasn't that I said like, I want to be more open, but I was like, yeah. oh, this experience and this experience might have something in common. Let me yeah. see what this is like. That 
And so I started meditating. Mm-hmm. You know, the Headspace has like a 10-day free yep. trial period. And I was like, yeah. And mm-hmm. for a little while after, I didn't didn't buy it. But then mm-hmm. I was like, you know, it, it is worth $6 a month. Yeah. I have a joke where I talk about it. It's like, you know, $1 every five days, 20 cents a day, like mm-hmm. less than a penny an hour. <laughs> or you don't have to. Um, and yeah, so I started yeah. doing that a little over a year ago. And it's just such a valuable – I. Oh, unless there's a reason, like if I have to, like a 4 a.m. flight or something, like maybe I won't do, I won't set my alarm. Like sleep is also important. Like my guy, it's interesting thinking about, I think it's ayahuasca that actually like gave me the language of thinking about things as guidelines in terms of rules or Mm. guidelines instead of rules. Yeah. Uh, Like that nothing, nothing need be a hard, fast rule. Like even like, you know, the way that Jews on the Sabbath uh, are not meant to work. Mm -hmm. But if you're a doctor and you see somebody that will die without your help, they're like, that trumps that there's yeah. a guideline of save someone's life rather than up oh, sorry the rule is don't work <laughs> and so uh for me now like mm-hmm. you know one guideline is meditate first thing every day mm-hmm. unless there's something else that's also more important that supersedes it like right if on. i have to sl- get, wake up and drive on very little sleep i'm like mm-hmm. get as much sleep as you can to maintain life kindness yeah. compassion forgiveness to yourself and to others mm-hmm. is like the theme there and so, yes, I think that answers the question of why I started meditating. Okay. Um, and it also, like, the thing you were describing beforehand kind of just feels like a general anxiety. Um, do you, and you're a very quick person, and I find generally people who are quick are also anxious. Do you, is that, would that be a correct assertion? <laughs> Wait a minute, you think that I'm, hold on, hold on. <laughs> okay. uh, um, yep, of course. I would say that if... If there is a spectrum yeah. of like anxiety to, dep- to depression, yeah, yeah. if that is, let's say that is one for mm-hmm. the very oversimplified sake of answering the question, yeah. I definitely would tend towards anxiety more than depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've heard this thing said that uh, anxiety is about the future yeah. and depression is about the past. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, the ideal is yeah. the present, yes. living in the moment n- between. And that is also a thing that meditation helps with, that ayahuasca helps with, that tai chi helps with, that friendships that I have, that all, so many things mm-hmm. that playing music helps with, yeah. that, you know, doing comedy. So many of these part, different parts of my life are like, sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. converging, like, you know, one of those things that they have outside a, a science museum where it's like you put in a coin yep. and then it just starts spinning and then eventually like going down the whirlpool in the center mm-hmm. and like getting to the center and be like, oh, this is, everything is leading here. Yeah. And so I would say that I don't, I certainly don't identify as having clinical, I've never been diagnosed mm-hmm. with having any anxiety disorders. I I have talked about the, I, if OCD, if, mm-hmm. if there's a spectrum of obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms, which I studied, you know, I got a, a bachelor's degree, among other things, in psychology. Oh, yeah? So I learned that, you know, the, in the DSM, yeah. like, I don't know if this is exactly how it works, but if you're like, look up a disorder and they're like, how do you tell if you have the disorder? And they're like, mm-hmm. here's nine symptoms. Do you have five of them? Yep. Like then technically we'll say that you have the disorder. Yes. Uh, does that sound fair? That sounds totally fair. And what people have told me. So. And so obviously if you have, the more you have of them, the maybe more intensely you're feeling that. Mm-hmm. But also uh, one thing that makes something a disorder versus not a disorder is, is it negatively impacting yeah. your life or the life of people around you? Yeah. And for me, uh, I definitely... I haven't looked at recently at the symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. but I don't believe I 
uh, am far enough along on the spectrum of however many symptoms it is necessary or how they manifest in my life yeah. to reach a thing that I would call a disorder because I don't think it impacts me negatively. And in fact, I think it impacts me sometimes positively. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like some people, you know, have maybe so many things that they're like, I must do this in this situation that it becomes debilitating. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, this is maybe not the most uh, reverential, reverential mm-hmm. uh, treating of it, but, you know, seeing the show Monk. Yeah. Uh, you know, Monk would ha- sometimes, I think they did a good job, mm. uh, but I also don't have the disorder. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if you watch it and you have it, if you're like, that doesn't ring true, it's a caricature. But there are moments where he, you know, has to touch specific things in mm-hmm. a specific order, and that can impact, like, whether he shows up somewhere on time. Yep. Um, and it can, you know, really, and I know other people who have, you know, they're like, I have to tie my shoes in this way, or else I think something horrible will happen in the world. Yeah. And uh, probably they're not doing it because I don't know if you've looked at the world, but <laughs> oh boy, uh, not enough people are tying their shoes correctly. Hey, Dave, did you see I got Velcro shoes? <laughs> oh boy, this is, this is a loophole. Um, yep. Loopholes in the yep. shoes holes. Yep. <laughs> uh, so what's that? Uh, aglet. That's the word. Do you know that word? Yeah. The little I, I'm nubbin. always happy to remember the aglet. end of a shoelace word. <laughs> I haven't known that for long, but yeah. Um, I actually right didn't always believe they existed. I used to be agnostic. Okay, guys, <laughs> I'm apologizing, but we're already past it. Let's move forward. So some might say that uh, I actually have a friend who uh, is a comedian, and whenever yeah. we talk, we've talked on my podcast, we've talked in real life mm-hmm. about how sometimes it does seem like me making jokes like that is a compulsion. It's one that yeah. I wouldn't do if I wasn't uh, – if I was with somebody yeah. who hated it, I'd be like, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Uh, like I've had some some of my girlfriends have not been on board <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, I, I think it'd be better to not date those people. Yeah. I mean, unless that was the only thing that was no good. Uh, sure. But like my girlfriend now loves, she would have delighted in that. Wonderful. And it's where my, you know, it's not where all of my comedy comes from. In mm-hmm. fact, I've done shows recently. Like I did a show in Boston a month or two ago uh, at a place that uh, is beloved to me. It's a show called The Gas that happens every Friday and mm-hmm. my friend Rob Crean runs it and it's just, it's mm-hmm. always, he's such a, a funny guy and a sweet guy and he books wonderful shows and so I go up I get to go up there every couple months if I want mm-hmm. and just do whatever I want for an hour you know and in those moments sometimes I'm telling stories that I've never told as comedy and in in the telling of those stories sometimes like new ideas formulate and pop into my brain like that I've never said aglet gnostic before mm-hmm. it's never come up but if that happened on stage I would be like well I guess I guess that's the thing that I'm saying you know it's, it's, it's not my purpose for being here I didn't come here to tell you that I'm coming here to share more universal truths about me in fact including the truth that this is a thing about me mm-hmm. my, my friend Jacqueline Novak do you know uh, you would love her I'm reading her book mm-hmm. right now which is called How to Weep in Public okay uh, I'm into that title oh it's I'll give you the book when I'm done or get your own and it's she you know has a lifelong uh, I don't want to say struggle. Maybe she would say struggle, but she's contending with depression over yeah. a lifetime, and it's it's a funny how to mm-hmm. do that in ways that she's like, here's how to like maximize your experience with it. <laughs> uh, you know, like yeah. keep keep a vacuum cleaner like right under your bed sheet so that if when there are crumbs, you know, yep. <laughs> uh, you can get them immediately. And oh, that's so good. She's delightful and she's oh. wonderful. You should. I'm, I'll recommend that she do the show if yeah. uh, she is. The greatest, and so in, uh, oh, why why did I bring her up specifically? Let's trace it back. Oh, yeah, she said about me once. I got it. We did it. We are a good team. Excellent. She said to me, she's like, Mike, a lot of people probably think that your comedy is about words, but I don't think that's what it's about. Mm. I think that it's about 
a man obsessed with words. (laughs) And I was like, Jacqueline, I love that. The only thing is, I don't know if I would use the term obsessed because, okay, I'm doing it. I see it. (laughs) And so that's a funny... it's a funny, meaningful thing, yeah. and so while like when I started doing comedy, it may it would have been all jokes, just like Aglet Gnostic, which yeah. I wouldn't even say is quote unquote a joke. Yeah. But now it's more about like the the mortar in between those mm-hmm. like those bricks are shrinking are shrinking and mm-hmm. shrinking. I don't make mistakes. It's a new word. Okay. Shrink, shrink, shrink. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's uh, somebody fighting with knives here, so yes. uh, be careful, everybody. Watch mm-hmm. out with those knives. Uh, shiving and shinking. Um, Snicked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All those kinds of onomatopoetic Mm -hmm. knife words. And knife words, everyone. Let's go to the knife drawer. Sorry about that. So. Okay. She... uh, She has helped me, Mm -hmm. like, you know, sort of encapsulate. Like, she's a genius. And I love that she said that because I'm like, yeah, that's makes me feel like, oh, what I am, you know, I am a lot of things. And my goals are... uh, There's multitudes of them as well. And where I might have in the past got caught up with only the things that I think are quote unquote less important and not doing like, what do I want to say? What is my, what is my comedy about? What is my art about? What do I want to share? How do I want to share it? Uh, like now I feel and that my obsessive compulsive tendencies mm-hmm. have always been very helpful to me in comedy in initially just like recording everything, writing it down in a notebook, right, speaking it into my digital recorder, mm-hmm. uh, and and or, and then eventually, like, I would go from, now I go from, I put it into my recorder, and then when my recorder's full, I put all those things into my notebook, and when my notebook's full, I put all those things, type them into my computer, so that every stage of the game, I'm doing, you know, a speaking, uh, a writing, and a typing, different oh. parts of my, you know, whether or not this is actually, there's some psychological reality to this, it has now become a ritual, and mm-hmm. whether it, it could just be that, I'm speaking it when I first think of it. I'm writing it down later after I've maybe tried it out and maybe had more thoughts about it. I'm a different person. I've had different experiences. And then I'm typing it months and months later. Again, same mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I'm in a different, I'm different. I'm in a different place. I'm using a different medium mm-hmm. of creation. And so just, I get new things out of it every time. So while I never used to, I don't care that much about rituals that are not meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if, if a friend wants to light a Hanukkah candle, great. I don't light my own Hanukkah candles. It's not an important thing to me. But mm-hmm. the ritual of using my recorder, using my notebook, using my computer to create the comedy in this way, like that's on the even the micro level of how my organization has helped me, like ha- helped me get started and then trying out jokes and having like a file of, you know, of a, yeah. a, a hundreds of pages that are like all the jokes that I've ever written like mm-hmm. in the past 12 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. And now, like when I'm putting, it used to be that I was like, I, wa- I want to tell all the jokes that can be good. I want to yeah. share them and record them as albums. And now I'm like, mm-hmm. that also, the same way I can't read everything, I can't capture yeah. everything. And that's okay. And so now I'm like, well, if I can't, it used to be, oh, I can't watch everything. So what do I want to watch? I have yeah. to pick. And now I can't say everything. So what do I want to say? And I get to, ch- I get to choose. Yeah. Like I like to say get to instead of have to. I'm like, I mm-hmm. get to pick what yeah. I say in my comedy. And so now like the hour that I'm working on now or the hour plus is like cohesive in both content and structure in a way that a lot of my, that my comedy sort of been heading towards. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, it is sort of these obsessive compulsive uh, bordering on anxious tendencies, yeah. uh, but I'm, I'm, I feel that I am able to keep potential anxiety in check most of the time mm-hmm. uh, through meditative practices, yeah. through, like, my girlfriend and I read this book every morning. Uh, there's, like, a different meditation or affirmation yeah. or a little lesson by this mm-hmm. poet, Mark Nepo. 
uh, NEPO, and it's really great, and I, I recommend it highly. And in one of them, it talks about uh, the idea of a flower opening and the way that a flower opening is beautiful at every stage of its opening, and that it can't rush it. It, it can only open at the exact rate that it's going to, and that you are like that, and or your life is like that, your career is like that, your passions are like that, your relationships are like that, uh, and that if you try to strain, like then that, if, if a flower could try to open faster, it would rip. Yeah. And that's why, like, you know, every day you will get done. At the end of a day, you'd be like, well, that's all. I did do so in some way that's all I could do that is what was going to happen it is what happened it is it was never not this yes and so yeah. thinking sometimes it all it takes is just being like if I'm like yeah. oh, I gotta do huh. I'm a flower <laughs> remember that you're a flower if if you were a flower what flower would you want to be I mean I don't even know it's hard to say because I'm not a fl- I guess I will okay. say no I, I will answer now no 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 uh, I'll tell you what flower I have an answer. Okay. I it, I just it just occurred to me. Mhm. Uh, based on a conversation that I had yesterday. Okay. Or possibly the day before. Definitely uh in the past week. Uh the flower I would be is a lily. Oh. And the reason is because it's my girlfriend's favorite flower. That is very good. Uh you worked at a suicide hotline for a little while. I did. Would you like to share anything about that experience sure uh so like i said i did study psychology yeah. in my undergraduate life and got a degree mm-hmm. and like there were some like i mean I, I loved it i i didn't love every class but like i had a class in like schools of psychotherapy where you know we talk about different kinds of you know like talk therapy cognitive behavioral stuff and mm-hmm. uh like implosive therapy like uh what's the systematic desensitization like all the different you know ways of uh of helping people and do you think studying that has made you like be able to more be more self actualized right off the bat? Because you seem like really high functioning. I like, I think I am. All walks I, of life. It's nice of you to say. Yeah. I mean, it's it's always interesting. Like I'll answer that question in this way. Yeah. Uh, because I don't officially know the answer, but I know the answer to this question. When some people ask me, because I went to grad school for linguistics after yeah. I went to college for philosophy and psychology, mm-hmm. and when I studied linguistics and people learn that, they're like, oh, your comedy. Is yeah. your comedy the way that it is? Because does linguistics help you with your comedy, or is it the other way around? Mm-hmm. Like, does your did your comedy make you? And I don't think it's an either or thing. I think that something in me is attracted to was attracted to linguistics, and then manifested in my comedy the way that it did. And so they are both, I say, symptoms of the disease that I am. Okay. Uh, of <laughs> this lily. Um, You're a diseased lily. Oh yes. I mean, yep. we all are. You yep. know, opening and then eventually mm-hmm. shutting or falling apart. I don't know how flowers work. But so to to bring that to the question you're asking, I don't know. You know. I think the reason that I was attracted to psychology, to the idea of maybe being a counselor, mm-hmm. uh, was because that was something that I could see myself being. Because I liked, yeah. when I, I remember when I was a teenager, like I had good friends that would go through relationship troubles and I'd love helping them with it. Even mm-hmm. I felt I was like more equipped to help them with their problems than I was even to see my own, which is I think maybe a commonality for, like obviously every every therapist doesn't have just a perfectly self-actualized existence in their personal life. In fact, sometimes the contrary. Yeah, And so, you know, it's sort of like, like the way that House, uh, you know, can solve everybody else's problems because he's the smartest and then also has all of his own problems. And I know that's fictional, but it seems, yeah. it's very, very resonant with the way that I think life often works. Like we, we oh, a thing that's been like supremely helpful for me, mm-hmm. in fact, like one time uh, a friend of mine came to me and she was like complaining about her boyfriend because he was 
being a bad boyfriend. Yeah. And I was like, if somebody came to you and told you exactly what you're telling me, what would you say to them? And she's like, break up with them. And I'm like, that's your advice to yourself. Yeah. And I was like, Listen, that the advice to give somebody to like listen to advice that you would give to somebody else in that situation, it's like, it seems like a trick, but it, and then I was like, wait, that's advice that I should take. <laughs> I should think about if I'm going through a thing, what would I tell a friend if they were going through that thing? I'm like, I'm, I'm taking my own advice that I'm giving my friend to take her own advice that she should give to herself. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that the seeds of that, it seems like, were in my, my teenage years when I was mm -hmm. like starting to be in a social, in a group of like friendly, nice, artsy kids from my summer camp. And like, they would break up with each other sometimes and I'd be like telling two people who were, who are both still my friends. I'm like, oh, you want me to beat up that guy? You know, like, oh, yeah. what? You, oh, you can, you can cry on my shoulder. You can complain about, like you can yeah. both. And I was like happy to be there listening. So I think that also was, you know, that capacity was quote unquote always in me or I found that, that I was attracted to that. So I think that, you know, that was steps along a path towards being able to self-actualize in the way that I just described, realizing while helping a friend that I could help myself. And so probably, you know, th the tools that I gained, like even just learning the vocabulary and learning about, like I didn't learn how to become any kind of those, any of those therapists. Like yeah. I don't have a degree to practice psychology. I just, I know about it. So I think that, yes, that probably, again, you know, sort of symptoms of, of the innate being mm -hmm. that I am manifesting in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all, I also love like advice columns. Like I think I mentioned oh, yeah. Dan Savage, like reading mm -hmm. his column, listening to his podcast. I li read and listen to Dear Prudence's uh -huh. podcast and her column in Slate. Mm -hmm. uh, and like there's a few other ones, Captain Awkward. And just like it's really mm -hmm. valuable for me to like it's entertaining, number one. Like these are mostly like really funny, smart, compassionate, progressive, cool, interesting, like just really good caring people mm -hmm. that are like sharing themselves with the world through helping and like it's entertaining and informative and valuable and like so many you know I've gleaned things that I can use in my life like whether it's about open relationships whether it's about just you know honesty and whether it's about just in a relationship like learning like oh like you don't have to be in a relationship like you you can when you're in something when you're in your life like when you're in your relationship, it can be so much easier to see outside of it and look at other people's things and like deal with those as sometimes as a way to avoid dealing with your own thing. And so now that's why, again, I guess, I don't know, this isn't, this wasn't the question, but it's why the relationship that I'm in now is so valuable mm -hmm. because I'm like, oh, I've had so many things be, you know, one thing off on paper in another relationship. Uh, and eventually that would be, you know, what uh, certainly could be a big thing, like not wanting kids or not wanting uh, non-monogamy or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm like through reading about and experiencing like the ideas about gratitude that, you know, that ayahuasca has brought me, that meditation mm -hmm. has brought me, that, you know, listening to Dan Savage has brought me, listening to Dear Prudence has brought me. All of these things, again, keep adding up to be like, oh, like I am where I am. It is good. I am fortunate. I have been fortunate. I am grateful. I know how many people are not fortunate. I So I both value my own experience and also now strive to hopefully help people better their own circumstances by mm -hmm. doing the only thing that I can, which is share my own experiences, yeah. uh, which in the form of comedy, art, music, podcasts, talking. Mm -hmm. uh, I started doing these advice songs. Like my girlfriend and I, uh, when I get a new Dear Prudence 
email, like, mm-hmm. you know, hey, there's a new column. I'll like p- pick up my guitar and play her just music and sing the column to her. And I started being like, why don't I do that for myself? So I started asking people if they wanted to submit questions of advice that I will answer in song form. And so I've done at least like a half a dozen somewhere, some single, some larger single digit number of these that are on my YouTube channel now, mm-hmm. where I like just put, I take their question and try to make it rhyme. And then I answer it in, you know, in lyric form. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's fun. It's a fun creation that really combines so many of the things that I love, which is, you know, hopefully helping people who want to be helped, uh, being creative and musical. And like, I, because mu- I started playing violin when I was four. So music has always wow. been like a language that I've spoken, even though I didn't like it at all for the most most yeah. part of the first dozen years until I started teaching myself <laughs> guitar. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, what's the question? The question was, um, but I think you actually answered it like um, as to why you volunteered at the suicide hotline. Oh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll say yes. I mean, the, the reason that I explicitly yeah. started volunteering there. Was because of the program? Uh, it wasn't, I guess I must have, I don't know how I learned about it, but okay. it, I'm, it might have been through the program for sure okay. or maybe like some classes that i was in mm-hmm. encouraged like hey like why not you know get out there and try to put this into practice in some form or another it seemed like the thing to do whether i came up with the idea or somebody you know incepted yeah. me with it i don't remember that at the time but it was definitely because i wanted to do what i you know i knew that i wasn't capable of being a therapist at that point but mm-hmm. i knew that i did learn that this volunteer hotline uh had volunteers that you could get trained and learn how to do it and uh so the experience it most mostly like i didn't i don't think i ever had like an emergency situation i never had i never talked to anybody uh who said i'm going to kill myself right now Mm -hmm. uh we were trained to like i think that we would have like supervisors that we would like get on the phone and be in contact with if that ever were to happen but we learned you know most of the time it would be like a person who was depressed lonely perhaps suicidal but usually most of the people I talked to didn't have a plan. Like we would ask them. Yeah. That's a, a valuable thing that I learned that, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times I think people are worried if a person is depressed or seems like they could be suicidal. Mm-hmm. The idea that asking it will put that idea in their head when in fact, uh, if the idea is in their head, then you're saying it isn't going to yeah. make them more likely to do it. If they're not thinking it, they're not going to be like, that's a great idea. <laughs> like very, it's the, the likelihood is they'll feel heard and seen and mm-hmm. appreciate you talking to them. Uh, about the experience that they're having and not glossing over it or dancing around it, mm-hmm. especially a person calling a suicide hotline. But even yeah. in, in life, in <laughs> if general, there, if you have a depressed friend. Yeah, if there was a time to talk about it, it is on the suicide hotline. Definitely. But also other times I recommend... Also talking about it. Yeah, so I think we were trained to... And this is like, you know, not yeah. like official training that everybody can't have. I think it's valuable to have that mm-hmm. if somebody calls up, like one of the first things we would say are is, are you feeling suicidal or are you thinking of hurting yourself yeah like are you thinking of hurting yourself and if they said uh they would often say no they would often say like or if they said yes i'm thinking about it then you'd say are you thinking about like do you have a plan yeah i think that was maybe the next question it's been a little while but like and if they said uh yeah i think that was it the next question is do you have a plan and if they said no then then great then you just keep talking to them and like hear what they wanted to Sometimes they just mm-hmm. wanted to talk to a person. Yeah. And then if they said, I do have a plan, they'd say, can I, can I ask what your plan is? Yeah. And then if they told you, you know, it was a gun or pills or, mm-hmm. you know, razors or whatever it was, uh, I'm like, oh, should there be like a content warning on this? I'm like, yeah. oh, it's a mental health podcast. Probably yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's in there. But yeah. uh, the, then the, the next question would be like, do you have like a time frame? Like, do you, are yeah. you planning to do this 
like now, now yeah. yeah now today soon. like and then for, for me it never got to that point mm-hmm. like i don't know if i ever even had somebody who did have a plan mm-hmm. uh which is you know it's sort of uplifting to think about but also you know some people who have a plan just go through with the plan yeah. so it's nice to know that i mean obviously if somebody's reaching out then yeah. they want to reach out. They want yeah. somebody to talk to. They want somebody to hear them. They're not calling just to say goodbye, usually, yeah. most of the time, oh, which is, awful. yeah, very heartening yeah. to think about. So, I mean, I, I recommend volunteering. I would definitely mm-hmm. recommend the experience. Yeah. I would be there, like, maybe four hours at a time, once a week. Okay. And then once a month, I would do, like, an overnight shift for eight mm-hmm. hours. Uh, and it was, you know, I, mm-hmm. I hope it was helpful. It seemed like, you know, there were people that... Uh, sometimes you would just be there for hours and nobody would call, and sometimes a lot of people would call. I would be there with other people usually, I think. It wasn't mm. usually just me, but it was like a thing that was like it could I, it could fit into my schedule, so I'm glad mm-hmm. that I was able to do it. And I forget how long I did it for, but definitely yeah. for some chunk of my college experience, right on. Uh, it was valuable. I think you also touched on something that's really important in as much as there's a distinct, distinction between having pseudocidal ideation and then also like plans to do the thing because like i've you know as someone who has a form of depression i i think oh you should just kill yourself a fair amount but it's never but the bit i do is like i'm eating a bagel and it's it's time <laughs> in the morning there's no reason for this can we just calm down and you know it's kind of like uh, winning the lottery not like that <laughs> it's like because like i know what i do with the money but it's never going to happen and there's a distinct difference between that. And I think talking about both is is very important. So I, I'm happy you did that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, a thing that I would say to a person in your position, if you ever needed help shoring up mm-hmm. uh, your continued decision to not uh, yeah. ideate it or to <laughs> ideate it only, but not, not to kill yourself, yes. not end your life, is uh, I, I've thought about this like sometimes I've had long hair. And sometimes when I have long hair, I'm like, I kind of want to have short hair. Uh, but once I make that decision, it's a really hard one to come back from mm-hmm. immediately. So I'm like, I better know for sure that that's what I want to do. And I know this is a, a very uh, a very large difference in scope and yeah. content for sure. But I think the, the, the kernel at the center of it is like, if certainly you go through parts of your life much of your life i'm sure where you have things that you enjoy relationships people that you care about you know uh, activities like something that is worth living for in your life and that the moments of suicidal ideation are hopefully not mm-hmm. all in- not all encompassing not like uh, a frequency that is you know such that you'd be like this is it's all i think about yeah. i mean I'm, for some people maybe it is and mm-hmm. that is I'm I'm very sorry. It, it definitely sounds difficult, and I I'm sure that you recommend people yeah. seek uh, the requisite professional help, Absolutely. not just from a podcast. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, call call a hotline. Exactly. Uh, go to a person. Like mm-hmm. there's many 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 people and available options. At least as far as the uh, mm-hmm. is the time of this recording. Yeah, in, the, yeah. <laughs> in the current state of affairs. Uh, yeah. Uh, so get it qu- quick. Get some help yes, before quick. there's no help. Um, <laughs> Oh, but man. sincerely, of course, uh, like especially it's noteworthy. I think this is a, a different thing as well to to point mm-hmm. out that as far as I know, like suicidality, like the the thought of wanting to kill oneself is something that is usually not the lengthiest 
period of time. But while you're in it, it seems like all that you'll ever experience. It mm-hmm. seems like it's that and it's that forever. But I would ask you that if there have been times in the past mm-hmm. that it hasn't been that, then for sure, that's not. it's not true that it's always. Yeah. And life is a constant change. Yeah. Like everything, everything that's bad will go away. Everything that's good will go, go away. away yeah. Everything will go away. Every emotion that you've ever had, uh, you have not had, I think, most people, I don't think anybody has ever had one emotional state that you can t- track back yeah. permanently. Yeah. Like that, they might not all be great. They, mm-hmm. Most of them might not be great. But uh, especially like suicidality, suicide, like that feeling is usually fleeting, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. And so I would just encourage you to like think of it like uh, just I'll put, off, put it off for one more day. Yeah. Let me let me talk to somebody about it. Yeah. And definitely, you know, I hope that there are people that, you know, I'm I'm so grateful that I do have uh good friends that I can say anything to yeah. like without fear of, you know, judgment and especially not judgment for like, you know, if I'm sick, if I'm yeah. ill, if I have a mental illness issue, mm-hmm. if I if I have something that, you know, I would I would care for them and they would care for me. Mm-hmm. Uh like, you know, if you can imagine your friend coming to you like this, you wouldn't our our friend, uh, our friend. I'll say our friend. Yeah, uh, why not? I was thinking of a specific friend, and then I thought of another friend of ours. But mm-hmm. uh, there's a comedian who I'll I'll name his name because I think he talks about this on stage. Yeah, I don't know the exact. This is a paraphrasing, and hopefully not butchering of an idea that he does. That probably there are more punchlines to, but the the <laughs> content is, uh, it's Shane Moss is a wonderful mm-hmm. comedian, who's uh, currently touring with a, a psychedelic show. Excellent. Uh, called Good Trip or A Good Trip. I forget mm-hmm. which, if it has the the determiner or article there. But uh, his point is that like when you're a child, you have to learn to treat others mm-hmm. the way that you want to be treated. Yeah. Like that's explicitly like the golden rules taught to children. And then as an, a functioning adult, you have to remember to treat yourself as kindly as you treat others, as yeah. your friends, certainly. Like you treat your friends like if – you know, the the negative thoughts that you might shoot at your own brain as an adult mm-hmm. be like, that was dumb. Why did you do that? You're stupid. Why? Why? Yeah. Why? Kill yourself. Like, you would never say that to a Ever. friend that you care about. Ever, yeah. So treat yourself like your friend yes. is my uh, advice. It's, it's Shane's advice and my yeah. advice. It was my advice to my friend before, mm-hmm. too. That's my advice as well. And I've heard that from very many people who have been coming out of that sort of thing. But I think that's a wonderful note to end on. And thank you very much for doing this. No, don't end it. Think about it more. (laughs) Okay, so the thought I did have (laughs) was like, um, you were right about like being depressed is kind of like, it goes on for, it feels like forever. I don't know if you've ever gotten like just too baked and you just think this this hilarity will never end. It's like the opposite of that. Oh yeah, I mean, for me sometimes uh, pot isn't my favorite. And so I have had some... uh, experiences on pot or mushrooms or different things where it does seem like it's going to like the time dilates and you're like but now the from ayahuasca uh, Mm -hmm. from the guide uh, a valuable thing that he says sometimes that i always remember in those experiences in mushrooms in life in any emotional experiences the effects come and the effects go yeah like it will happen and then it will stop happening whatever it is like Mm -hmm. life comes and life goes like everything does and so like you can just wait like i have a joke about uh, you know, don't don't kill somebody, don't murder somebody. Uh, just wait and let yep. time be your accomplice. Absolutely. Uh, and so I'll say that about <laughs> yourself as well. Like, yep. let I'll, the the assu- 
suicide assisted by time. Time. Let yes. Father Time be the only murderer. Chrono please. suicide oh, act. That's great. Wonderful. I, uh, and I think I did have one other thing that you made me think. Oh yeah. Oh. I, in situations where I've been, I took a, a vape pen of full of of weed once, and okay. it made my my brain feel very high and good. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, this is the way I think people enjoy pot. This mm -hmm. is good. But then I was like, it happened so suddenly, and I did I take too much? <laughs> and then I started freaking out a little bit about whether I would freak out later. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I was able to talk myself down and be like, wait, it feels good now. Either it's going to feel bad later and then you can freak out about it later or it's not and you don't have to. But if you freak out about it now, there's at least one, maybe two freakouts. Yep. If you wait till later to freak out, there's maximum one, <laughs> mm -hmm. maybe zero freakouts. And that's why I recommend thinking about death as well. Like maybe it's the worst, but also don't freak out about it now. Yeah. Have have only one bad thing, not a bad thing now. Like, hey, would you rather live freaking out your whole life and then dying? Or would you rather live not freaking out as much as possible and mm -hmm. then dying? Even if it's a shorter amount of time. That's fair. I agree. Okay. And I think that's a great place to, to end. <laughs> not to, to have ended a little before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being on. Bye.